Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Edgar Wright is a director, screenwriter, producer, and actor known for his fast-paced editing style and wry sense of humor. A fan of action movies, Wright likes to synchronize music to the kinetic movement he depicts on screen in movies like Shaun of the Dead, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and The World's End. Wright's latest movie, the star-studded Baby Driver, sees him once again flipping familiar tropes, and propelled by the protagonist's beloved iPod, it became a surprise summer blockbuster in 2017. In this talk at the Red Bull Music Academy Los Angeles Festival, presented as part of our director's series and moderated by composer, producer, and music supervisor Brian Reitzel, Wright explored the evolution of his use of music and film and discussed his long-standing creative partnerships. It was a great talk, but as a word of warning, the talk was structured around the showing of film clips. They would show a clip, then talk, a clip, then talk. If you'd like to follow along, we've put that list of clips that are talked about online. And we know that this might not be the ideal listening experience, but we actually felt like it was such a great talk that it's worth bringing to you as a podcast. Because Wright had a lot of universal truths that don't really depend on you, the listener, having seen the clips themselves. Anyway, enough from me. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. And now, without further ado, let's welcome Edgar Wright to the stage. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to play some clips, talk about music, talk about the clips. The first thing we're going to see and hear is uh, Busby Berkeley, 1934, Dames which features the track, I Only Have Eyes For You. I'm a big fan of old musicals, and um, Busby Berkeley uh, was a choreographer. uh, Now, some of the 30s films that he did with Warner Brothers that were all shot in Los Angeles, I think Dames was shot in Burbank at the uh, Warner Brothers stages. Um, He's an interesting character, Busby Berkeley, because he was actually not a dancer. He's like one of the most famous choreographers ever. Um, And he was a, a theater kid, and then he went to uh, uh, the First World War. And in the First World War, he had two jobs, both which factor into his movies. Is one of them, he was a drill instructor. And he also did aerial reconnaissance. And then also when he was working on Broadway, because his mother, I think, was a Broadway uh, actress, he would be in some plays, but he would also kind of be around the stage. And so he pretty much designed some shots just by things that, like, a lot of the shots in his movies are things that you couldn't do on stage. So, you know, sometimes when you see musicals, they sort of conform to the idea of the proscenium arch and what you could see. But Busby Berkeley sort of, like, broke out all, all of that and gave us angles that you just can't do uh, on, on the stage, on a stage musical. So it's interesting, like, not only was he, like, a drill instructor in the army, which kind of factors into even a clip like this, uh, but also, you know, doing his aerial reconnaissance, he became obsessed with, like, overhead shots. Um, and then also, like, when he was, like, sort of hanging out literally in the rafters of these Broadway theatres, he'd look at the dancers, like, looking down. And um, there's not too many overhead shots in this one, but um, the other thing about something like Dames is that 
uh, a lot of those movies at the time, another director does the right. drama bits. Right, he just does parts. And he of does it. the this the, these parts, which are sort of like the best bits. The best bits of the movie. No disrespect to the director or the rest of it, but um, pretty much a lot of the '30s Busby Berkeley films, they sort of have the same plot of like getting a musical together and all of the sort of trials and tribulations of putting on a Broadway showstopper. And then, you know, you have like musical set pieces throughout. And then at a certain point you have things which are entirely magical that are, sp are supposed to be on stage, but like could never exist on the stage. I mean, the other thing about like these sequences is that, you know, nobody would really bother to do them at this scale anymore. Like if you were gonna make a, like a musical set piece in a Busby Berkeley style in this day and age, you know, I'm sure you'd be asked to do it with CG, or can we kind of like have, can we like digitally multiply the dancers? So I think, you know, in this sequence, uh, there's like 250 dancers, which if any of you work in the business, you know that that's a lot of money. <laughs> but also back in those days, this was like before they really had like proper unions and hours. Right. So when they used to shoot these sequences. They just fed them. They just, I mean, you know, these people were existing sort of on a diet of like, uppers and working light. I mean, that's not, a, um, that, that's not a scandalous accusation. That's literally what happened is that back then they would be shooting for like over 24 hours. They would still be shooting like it was like a wild, like, you know, 80s music video and they're just kind of like running and running until literally people fall over and die. <laughs> I'm not Sounds sure that anybody, like not sure that anybody died during the making of this set piece. But it is something that, like, I, I think some of these ones in this list, so we've got some clips from my work and a lot of clips of music of things that I like in film. And a lot of them are things that, like, made a big impression upon me when I was young. So even, like, somebody like Busby Berkeley would be a name that my mother would say quite a lot. And before I'd necessarily seen the original movies, I'd certainly seen photos of them, and I'd definitely seen them ripped off in other things. Like probably the first yeah. time I ever saw like a Busby Berkeley style music number was in like the Muppet movie, you know? So he's like one of those people where like just his style and the way that he approaches it, as you notice even in this clip, there's not actually a lot of dancing. It's really sort of about, like I said, the sort of drone structure thing. It's about the formations the and shapes, the shapes, the shapes, the shapes yeah. that he makes with the dancers and their costumes and, and the, the reflections. And the music. I mean, yeah. this, this piece of music has been covered like a thousand times. It's a very famous piece of music. Well, so. what's amazing is that these, in a lot of these musicals, these songs were written for the film. Right. You know, so it's like this song, I Only Have Eyes For You, which you've heard a million times, is actually written for dance. Yeah. So uh, that's kind of exciting. Harry Warren wrote the uh, music. Yeah, I mean, uh, and the two actors who feature in this is uh, Dick Powell, who's in a lot of these movies, and Ruby Keeler, who's also in a lot of these movies. She's also in 42nd Street. And um, as you'll see in this clip, this is probably the most Ruby Keeler that you could possibly get in one sequence. So Great. let's check it out. Let's, uh, let's watch uh, a clip from Dames. Hey there, at this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah. Um, bum too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to couch wisdom. It would be very difficult to do that today. That's the thing. Well, it's like, well, so even with today's technology, it's still like... The opening of the Chinese Olympics, right? <laughs> it's, it's the closest thing you can get, but that costs, like you said, yeah. zillions of dollars. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I always just like... Uh, when you watch the, those movies, uh, um, I always just bowled over by the amount of work that went into it. It's, it's yeah. crazy. And back in, then in those days that they would, um, 
you know, all of those dancers would be on contract, so Busby Berkeley would be running his musicals unit, and I think he'd just be shooting, like, separately from the movie. Right. So it's kind of something that doesn't really exist in this day and age, the idea of, like, oh, there's, like, the musical unit that are doing these amazing set pieces. Um, but he would be sort of operating on his own budget and with his own kind of, like, cast of dancers almost completely separately from the rest of the film. So now we're going to ping pong. We're going to play something of Edgar's. And we're kind of working a bit chronologically. So um, uh, we're going to play something now from the TV series you did called Spaced. From from the uh, year of 2001, I believe. I'm not sure which episode this is from. This is from the second uh, series, as we say in the UK, not season. Uh, Second series of Spaced from 2001. There were only two series. I directed every episode. And... um, I guess, uh, you know, we can talk a little bit about the clip afterwards, but I think one of the things that happened with this show was, um, you know, I was uh, 24 when I did the first series of Space, and um, I know. Um, <laughs> and uh, it and was you the were f- 50 when you ended. <laughs> <laughs> I felt 50 when I ended, especially by the end of the second series. It's very intensive, because we didn't really have the money like sort of, of like, you know, bigger comedy shows. And so we're always like, you know, every, everything is up on screen. But one of the things that happened with Spaced actually, prior to this, I had, I had got into the industry through doing, I'd done amateur films when I was a kid, and, um, and then I'd gone to art college briefly, and not doing a film and TV course, but doing a sort of design course. But I kept making these kind of goofy movies, and uh, not goofy movie like the Disney one. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'd like to see that. <laughs> uh, I made, I directed, I don't know if you know, I directed a goofy movie. Um, <laughs> no, um, don't spread that around. Um, so I can't remember. How, oh, so how I got into doing TV was I made a film when I was 20 years old, a very, very low budget, silly Western that was, um, you know, it's pretty, it's, pretty, it's pretty silly. Has anybody ever seen it? Did anybody see it at Cine Family when we showed it a couple of years ago? Um, Anyway, the thing is, it got released... I don't want to say it got released in theatres. It got released in a theatre... In theatre. One theatre. That's all you need. In London. But actually, two of the guys... Two people that saw it were these two comedians, uh, Matt Lucas and David Walliams, who went on to do Little Prison. And literally, as soon as that was... uh, Like, the film was on, they asked me to direct their first um, uh, TV show, uh, which was a sketch show called Mash and Peas. And then David had actually been to university with Simon Pegg. So I met Simon Pegg around that time. And I went on straight on to do another TV show, literally that next year when I was like 21, that had Simon and Jessica Hines in it. So then those two on that show got on really well. And then Space came around. It took them sort of three years to develop it. And so then we were shooting in, I think we started shooting in 99. And we did two seasons of it. One of the things that happened, though, which kind of had a bearing on everything else, it was, it was somewhere where there wasn't really any music written into the script. Um, maybe there were a couple of thoughts of things. But it very quickly became clear that the series needed, like, a vibe. And at that time, you know, on network TV, you had a sort of overall clearance thing where you could sort of clear just tracks, unless it was something major, like you couldn't clear like the Beatles or Led Zeppelin. But things of a certain level, you could pretty easily clear it for the network. So I sort of became the music supervisor on the show, essentially, because nobody else was doing it. It was a very small crew. And so a lot of the music of the time, a lot of that big beat and lounge core stuff and some sort of indie stuff found its way into the show. 
And so I have sort of fond memories of whilst we were editing the show, there used to be a Virgin megastore around the corner, and I used to just go and rifle through the CD racks and uh, find songs for the show. And usually it would be like something, trying to find things that were like something else. So if we had some Fatboy Slim tracks in there, it was like, well, what else is like Fatboy Slim? It's like, oh, Bentley Rhythm Ace, like Lemon Jelly, like all these other artists. But I have, like, when I think of editing space, I think of that sound that you don't really hear anymore is the, the clacking through the jewel cases on CDs. <laughs> standing. You still hear that in my house. <laughs> well, that's something that like, I, I, I think of that sound when I think of like, editing the show. I didn't edit it, I edited some parts of it. Actually, in this, actually, this episode is one of the ones where I'm credited as an editor. That, um, and in fact, the editor of this um, episode with me, Paul Matchless, is also one of the editors on Baby Driver. So I've like, worked with him this far back. A lot of space, the music was put on afterwards. But then I think in the second series, once we realized how well the soundtrack worked on the first one, there was some kind of like thinking ahead of like things that could work in sequences. It was a great experience because nobody was really telling me, nobody's really telling me what to do at any point. Like, or how to do it. Or how to do yeah. it. It's one of those things where you, you don't realize how lucky you are until later that you were sort of left alone, yeah. you know. They, the channel, like, because we were under a certain budget level, they would still give us script notes, but then on the second series, they would barely give us that. You would get notes where it would be like, the only things that they would tell you is, hey, you can only say fuck twice and you can't say cunt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why fuck twice and um, what, what a third one would do. But, that's, um, that's changed a lot now, though. It was, it was, I mean, yeah, it definitely changed a lot. But the, the difference between the UK TV and over here is on network TV, that's why cable has never really taken off in the UK. It's because you can do those things on TV. And a lot of cable shows just get shown on network TV after, like, 9 o'clock. The space used to be on In Between Friends and Frasier. Perfect. And, uh, my proudest moment was that I think it's the third episode of the first series, which starts with the, as a zombie sort of killing episode, which ended up inspiring some of the dead in the way. And I remember vividly that the announcer at the start of it says, and Friends has just ended. So imagine you've just had Central Perk, and then the announcer says, next up, Spaced, which features strong language and violent imagery from the start. And I was like, yes! <laughs> Immediately lose 50% of Friends uh, uh, viewers. Uh, okay, well, uh, that was interesting because I... It factors into the next one. Yeah, and, and, and also I like the fact that it sounded like it went from licensed music to the gunfire, which became slightly musical, and then there was a change in the tone of the music where it became more scored and more, you know, sort of sounding like the character is kind of dying. And so I don't know how aware you were of it at the time, but you were uh, developing... You were developing. Yeah, I think 2001. So, I think also it's the shift in, like, sort of, that they're, at first they're miming, they're sort of miming, they get much more slow motion towards the end. So it starts out with the track by the Blue Zones, and then it ends up with, um, I think it's Adagio for Strings, because it's in Platoon. Oh, right. So that's the kind of music from Platoon when, sort of, like, Willem Dafoe is, like, dying like that. So, um... So, you know, that was a little film reference in itself, the, the, the second part of the music. But yeah, I think, I, maybe, the, and the Adagio for Strings thing, maybe that was written into the script. I can't actually remember, but, you know, it was something that definitely, we're thinking about that as we're shooting that scene. I mean, I have very fond memories of shooting that. It's literally, if you've ever been to Camden in London, it's literally, like, 
two minutes walk from the, the tube. It's just funny. It's just like an alley around the back of the main high street. Uh, yeah, it leads into the next clip in a way. Yeah, epic. Uh, Ennio Morricone, uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, 1967. Yeah, um, well, there's something interesting about how this was made, and maybe we'll talk about this afterwards, but I'd say this is another director and uh, a film that my, my, my parents were both art teachers. They had no connections with the, in the film business, but they were film fans, and there were various directors that I, or films I would hear about through my parents. And like, they talk about Alfred Hitchcock a lot. You know, I remember my mum mentioning Busby Berkeley quite a lot, but also like Sergio Leone was something that they talked about quite a lot. And so I think when these films were on TV, I was probably allowed to stay up and watch them because they thought that they were somewhat appropriate. Um, but we can talk about so how this is made, uh, but I think this is like, this is from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and it's like, it's probably one of the greatest climaxes in cinema uh, with score by Ennio Morricone. The thing that's interesting about that, which I remember reading about, which sort of factors into, you know, um, even the next clip we're gonna show, and definitely into Baby Driver, is that Ennio Morricone had written that music before they started filming. Um, and so with that sequence, like they are playing that music on set, which I think sort of creates like, you know, in terms of like for, you know, because the actors, if you were getting them to kind of just stand there in silence, the actors might start to think, oh, this is weird, the amount of like pause or something like that. But because they can hear it and hear how dramatic it is and how it's building, it's sort of adding to their performance. So that's something that like, in a, in a, in a lot of Italian films, they don't shoot any sync sound. Like they dub it all later, especially with a film like that where you've got you know, like American actors and Spanish actors and Italian actors, all of the sound is done afterwards. So they could, in theory, like, you know, play that music and Sergio Leone be yelling things during the take to tell them what to do. The other thing about those movies, and they're probably some of the first Westerns I saw, so I was slightly spoiled by seeing them first, but, you know, a lot of the Italian directors of that time, they didn't have the budget of the American films, so they make up for it in style. So you have these movies that are like sort of, you know, kind of pop art masterpieces where they're going heavy on the style of the editing and the camera shots and the music, um, you know, because they don't always have the budgets of the, of the big American films. Although that cemetery is, is built for the movie. That is not an existing cemetery. Apparently they got the Spanish army um, like uh, employed like sort of hundreds of Spanish troops to make that cemetery in like sort of 72 hours. So that sort of cemetery exists only for the movie, which is an incredible set in itself. Ennio Morricone is obviously one of the greatest composers, but a lot of those Italian filmmakers that use score and, uh, or, or, you know, like that, like another one, uh, Darren Argento and the use of Goblin, like if you've ever seen Suspiria, that's another movie sure. where the score is so heavy in the movie it almost like dominates everything else. And it's another thing where you sort of can tell when you watch the movie, it's like, oh, the score is kind of done before and they're just like playing it over what they have. But it's also very, like you were saying, it's very, the style of it is quite unique with the guitars, with the singing, with all that stuff. You know, Mark Honey was doing like 12 movies a year too. Yeah. And he didn't have Pro Tools. You know, he had to like, write these themes, then do all these variations of the one theme. But I think in like 67, 68, 69, it's incredible how many movies he did. Yeah. Like, I don't know how you could do that without a computer, without, I mean, they're all real players. He's sitting down and, you know. There are some scores of his 80s movies that are great, which oh, are yeah. basically redone 
versions of his 60 scores of films that he figures nobody has seen. Like, so his score, for, okay. the un, his score for The Untouchables, which is fantastic, yeah. is basically the score for another movie called, I think, Revolver. It's almost exactly the same score. Um, but, you know, he kind of figured quite rightly, he goes, nobody's seen Revolver, let's just use it again for The Untouchables. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The um, best example of that happening, which is an amazing story, has anybody ever heard of the um, silly, um, uh, like, knockoff Star Wars movie called Star Crash with David Hasselhoff? <laughs> it probably was on Mystery Science Theatre. So John Barry did the score for that movie, and he did the score sight unseen. He had not seen the movie, he did the score before the movie. And the score is pretty good. The score is the best thing about it. It's John Barry, who's an Oscar-winning composer, but he had not seen Star Crash, and then he sees Star Crash, and he's like, this film is terrible. <laughs> Cut to, like, seven years later, um, he's scoring out of Africa with Meryl Streep. He gets, nobody's seen Star Crash. I'll just use the music from Star Crash. And, and wins, and an wins Oscar. the Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you ever watch Out of Africa, just think that it's the music from Star Crash. <laughs> Oscar-winning music from stuff. They're such similar movies, I mean. <laughs> I've done in total like 10 music videos spread over like um, uh, 20 years maybe. I guess the last one I did was in 2014 and the first one I did was probably in 1995. But I've only done 10 total and, and maybe in, in between like Spaced and Shaun of the Dead, I did a couple of music videos. When I was doing music videos in, in the UK, I was kind of hitting that point already where, so I guess it's around the time of file sharing, where the budgets were just going down. And so I had this thing, weird thing where I was having more success with music videos as the budgets were getting lower each time. So like the first one that I'd done after Space was like a 60 grand video and then it was going down to sort of 30, 20, 10, 6. Make it on your phone. Yeah. So this was one of the sort of cheaper ones, but like sort of what was interesting about this is that when I used to do music videos, I would usually do it to try something out. So as a, if there's something that I haven't done and you, you basically come up with a, a treatment based on something that you would like to do and hope that the band agrees with it. There's another music video that I did, all in one shot on a Steadicam. And I did that because I knew in Shaun of the Dead I'd written this scene that was going to be all in one. And I'd never done an all in one Steadicam <laughs> shot, so I thought I'll dry, do a dry run on this music video. This one is a bit different because this is basically like a dry run for the first scene of Baby Driver. However, I didn't write the Baby Driver idea for this video. I basically had that kind of like sort of um, exam cramming thing where the night before I was supposed to hand in a treatment for Mint Royale, I hadn't come up with an idea that I liked. And so I'd already had the idea for Baby Driver. Like I had the first part of the idea of like the first scene, which we'll see later on in like 1995, when I first heard the John Spencer Blues Explosion. I'd had the idea for the first scene. I, I sort of knew vaguely what the rest of the film was, but I didn't have a plot. But I definitely had the first scene and the idea of like the driver goofing off to music in the car. So I basically, in a fit of desperation, I wrote this treatment for this music video. Uh, and it turned out well, and you know, there are lots of British comedians in it that you'll recognize, especially if you're fans of the Mighty Boosh and uh, Spaced. Um, but the thing was, afterwards, after I'd done it, I was mad at myself for a while because I thought, oh, I burned this great idea uh, oh, yeah. for this movie yeah, on this gave music it video. Away. And I just, I gave it away. And what, what a waste. What a waste of that idea. But then weirdly, over the years, and I got to thank Noel Fielding and the success of The Mighty Boosh for this, this video just kept 
sort of echoing around. Like this video was shot in 2002 and released in 2003. Literally, it was released a couple of months before I started shooting Shaun of the Dead. Even like 10 years later, people would still like be posting it on the internet like it was a new video. And I think even it crops up on one of the Mighty Boosh DVDs. It actually ended up being a help. Because then by the time I was thinking about actually doing the movie, when I started talking about it more seriously like 10 years ago, or especially in like 2010, after Scott Pilgrim came out, this video was still sort of in the ether. And there was even a funny thing, like I remember at the LA Film Festival in 2010, I did this like talk of like clips from my movies and J.J. Abrams was moderating and he said, hey, can we show that Getaway Driver music video that you did? And I said, yeah. And then whilst the clip was playing, J.J. leant over to me and said, I think this would make a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I leant back and said, I am way ahead of you. <laughs> Well, it still took seven years. Well, it's also funny, I guess around that time, actually, that a lot of those artists, it did actually like, inspire a lot of great music videos because most of those people are not in the videos. So if you actually think about it, Chemical Brothers, Fatboy Slim, you know, that they have lots the, of that was great the videos yeah. by Spider Jones, Michelle Gondry, etc. Partly because the artists are not featuring, there's nobody, there's no vocalist to lip sync it. So it actually gave, with music videos, it gave people like an open brief. So with something like that, you know, the band are in there briefly, like, they walk past the car, but, like, sort of, they're not, they're not even singing. It's a Captain Beefheart sample. So it actually sort of, like, let you kind of come up with wilder ideas, uh, that whole sort of spate of, like, superstar DJ, like, sort of um, tracks, you know? Do you still have a, a portable Discman? No, I don't think I ever had a portable Discman. <laughs> Does anybody? Because I have one and it's broken. And just the other day, I went to Best Buy because I heard they sell them there. Like Insignia sells them for like seventeen ninety nine. Oh, I didn't buy one, but um, okay. So we're gonna move now into one of the greatest sci-fi movie, probably the greatest sci-fi movie of of all time, two thousand one, A Space Odyssey. Yeah. Um, uh. But this is something that, like, as another movie that my parents introduced me to, and I think when I first watched it on TV, you know, uh, I, I was already into Star Wars by that point, and then, you know, obviously this film is a lot more adult and a lot more enigmatic, <laughs> you know, so we, but even as a kid, um, not really understanding it, it still sort of wielded real sort of power over me. And, like, I'm not, I wasn't grown up, like, my parents didn't um, take me and my brother to church at all, so I have no religious upbringing. So in a weird way, something like 2001 is about as close as it comes to like sort of a religious experience for me. <laughs> and particularly this, there's a shot in this bit, you'll see it where the kind of the planets and the monolith come into alignment that I just think, ah, oh. it's just to me, it's like that's the sort of like, uh, you know, if there's some kind of proof of some higher power, it's just the idea of symmetry in space, you know? And so this is a movie that, I, and it's one of those movies that I, I'm sure other people in the audience feel the same way, is that when it's on at the cinema, I go and see it because I just have to see it on the big screen and it almost feels like going to like a, see something in a gallery for two and a half hours. Uh, this is a sort of key film in terms of the film soundtrack in terms of actually using existing source, uh, like using songs that already exist or pieces of music that already exist. Because the story with 2001 that's interesting is Stanley Kubrick had uh, commissioned a composer called Alex North to do the score. And he did the score. But by the time Alex North had done the score, Stanley Kubrick had got so used to the guide tracks, the temp tracks, which were these songs that are in the film. Because him and his editors had bought a bunch of classical music albums, trying to find the right thing. 
Strauss and um, you know and Ligeti. L- Ligeti. Uh, um, Ligeti on this clip. Who was alive at the time too? Yeah. And wasn't all that well known. He also. I read something that was interesting: is that Ligeti liked the film and liked the use of his music in the film, but was annoyed that Richard Strauss and Johann Strauss were in the same movie. <laughs> um, but here's an interesting thing. This is like one of the first examples of, which happens a lot later. Exactly the same thing happened with the Exorcist score, which is why Tubular Bells is on that movie, yeah. is that Lalo Schifrin had done a score, but William Friedkin had got used to the temp music and chucked the score out. So basically, Alex North's score went unused because Stanley Kubrick and his editors thought it was just more in, like, uh, impactful with the well, temp music they'd used. Well, and Alex North was a very kind of great but conventional composer. He did like North by Northwest and you know, all these wonderful movies. This is, I mean, this is an incredible... Um, I mean, the whole movie is incredible to me. And I think also because at the time, they're sort of like cutting-edge technology in terms of using miniatures and opticals and trying to show sort of like deep space in a way that had never been seen on screen. And it's only like a $10, $12 million movie. It was not an expensive movie to make. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the thing is, is that like sort of... It's, this film is like um, 49 years old? Yeah, it'd be 50 years old next year. And even though, obviously, like, special effects have come a long way since, it's still very powerful. I'm really curious to know if Kubrick showed the temp music to Alex North. Like, dude, this is what I like. Check this out. Because that's just... I mean, he, you know, Ligeti experimented with all these ways of making tone clusters, and that's with soprano, with, with, vo- with, with voices and stuff, and it just sounds like, it sounds like the future, still. A lot of composers don't want to hear any temp music. And especially sometimes, even if you're trying to be nice and temp it with their own music, they're like, oh, no, turn this off. You know, I don't want to hear it with my own music either. So I have no idea whether he actually heard the temp, but, like, it's, it's difficult to top that. And also, it's clearly, like, the editors edited it to the Ligeti. Yeah. It's still like, astonishing, that sequence. I just, like, I mean, it's amazing to think that that's 49 years old because it still looks incredible. There's no Strauss or Wagner in The Shining. Uh, okay, <laughs> so now let's move on to uh, 2004, Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, there's no real link between 2001 and Shaun of the Dead. Um. <laughs> That's why I jumped right into it. Yeah, so this is... Um, I'm not even going to tell you which scene it is, because you can guess. Um, but, uh, you know, so we... Th- this was absolutely written into the script, and this song was written into the script... I'll tell you afterwards what the B choice was, but like, this was something as well, in, in, again, in sort of anticipation. Like I said, I've been thinking about Baby Driver for all this time, but this is the first time I'd done a sequence where um, we had a piece of music playing, and we had it playing in on the set so that the actors could hear it as they were performing the sequence. And it was the first time that I'd ever used earwigs, which is basically where, like, there's a little transistor, so... A radio. Yeah. So the actor can hear the music, but we can still record dialogue. So they can hear it, but, you know, the microphones can't pick it up. So basically, we had earwigs for, like, the actors and I think the camera operator as well. And it was also the first time I'd really done a sequence where I'd actually had a, a music choreographer. In fact, the same choreographer who did Blue Song, a woman called Litza Bixler, who's amazing, I had her and a stunt coordinator at the same time. And, um, you know, I think unlike some of the later ones like Scott Pilgrim and Baby Driver, in this one, it wasn't, it wasn't the perfect kind of blend yet in terms of, I felt on the day that when we were doing this sequence, the stunt guys 
sort of, or Stunt Coordinator sort of stood back and said, oh, no, this is your bit, and sort of stood in the corner with his arms folded. I think then on later movies, especially like working with like Brad Allen on Scott Pilgrim and, and working uh, with Ryan Heffington and Darren Prescott on Baby Driver, that was a thing where it became like a proper team effort. This was like getting there, and I'm, I'm very happy with the sequence, but it wasn't something where it was, it was, it was moving in this, you know, sort of direction of like two, two very disparate... Um, departments like dance and stunts working together you know that movie was not an expensive movie and so we'd written Queen into the script but I don't think it was until we were in maybe even when we'd started shooting that we knew we got it cleared so that was quite nerve wracking because we were really banking on that song did you have to show it to them? no I don't think so and in fact the reason that uh, like You're My Best Friend by Queen is the end credit version of the song is on the end credits is because we went, when we were writing the script, I had Queen's Greatest Hits on CD, and I would play it, and we would play this song because we were going to use this song, and then You're My Best Friend was the next song up on that album. And so every time that would come on, I eventually I said to Sam, I said, this would be good for the end credits, because the first lyric is, ooh, you're making me live. You know, you've just seen Ed as a zombie. Spoiler alert. Um, but uh, I remember that... Um, we, we didn't know for sure whether we had it when we started, and our B choice for this sequence was uh, Rasputin by Boney M. Um, which, see, that's exactly why we didn't use it. It's because yeah. that song means something in like Europe and like Australia, but nothing in the States. But I'm telling you, go home and YouTube Rasputin by Boney M, your new favorite song. Mm. Um, it's a party. It's an amazing song. I mean, but it would have like uh, had tumbleweeds at the Vista in Los Angeles. The other reason I use that song is I used to, I was a big Queen fan, a big Queen fan growing up. I used to love this song. But at the time before the movie, th- this wasn't one of Queen's most famous songs. No, um, not at all. You know, at, at the time. <clears throat> and even the crazy thing, there's this Queen musical, We Will Rock You. And I went to see it maybe about a couple of years before I did this. And Don't Stop Me Now is, is not really in the musical, which I was like, how could you miss that? Like, it's the most obvious, like, musical number. And they even make a silly joke where somebody starts singing Don't Stop Me Now and somebody else goes, stop, and they, they never sing the song, which to me was really dumb. Um, <laughs> and I didn't really like the musical, and that was one of the reasons. I later found out, way later, that Brian May doesn't really like the song. It's a Freddie Mercury composition. Yeah, it's Freddie. Freddie right. wrote it, and I think at the time, it was when Freddie had his own PR guy, and I found an interview later that Brian May said, oh, I never liked Don't Stop Me Now because I can't think of the song without thinking of Freddie, Freddie's PR guy going, that's the single guy, it's Don't Stop Me Now. So he basically got annoyed that this song was getting kind of pushed. Um, so it's funny, like, so I, I, and actually, like, so I didn't really get any response from Queen. I mean, they... Uh, about the movie particularly. But weirdly enough, like, Brian May did respond to the use of Brian, Brighton Rock in Baby Driver because he oh, yeah. wrote that one. Of course. And he tweeted about it the other day to say how much he liked the film and liked the use of Brian Rock. But I was very happy to use this song and, like, sort of, you know... And actually, after it, I'm not claiming credit for it becoming more famous. I guess I am claiming credit. <laughs> but it did actually end start appearing in a lot of, like, adverts afterwards. And I, I don't think it was a hit here in this country. It may be a minor hit, because you had Fat Bottom Girls and Bicycle, yeah. which were, like, from the same album. Yeah. From jazz, the, yeah. the same record. Yeah. Um, I it always wasn't a, it was, song. Oh, yeah, it's a great song. But, um, so that was the first time, really, that I, you know, sort of, like, done something where... 
not just playing the music on set. There have been other things, like obviously music videos or things in space where we played the music. It's something where we're really like timing it out and like everybody sort of like, you know, is, is, is um, you know, can hear the different parts. And, you know, it's very strange to be out doing a night shoot in the middle of South London with a bunch of zombies. Also blasting Don't Stop Me Now. And, it, you know, it was exactly as I uh, hoped that the sequence would turn out, and I was very happy when that became sort of one of the most sort of um, standout sequences in the film. John Landis's American Wealth in London, um, I think is like one of my top three desert island movies of all time. Uh, and I saw it when I was, I was too young to see it at the cinema. But I remember when it came out in 1981, so I must have been um, six or six or seven, there was this magazine, it was like our version of Fangoria, there was a magazine called Starburst, and they had this especially gory cover of David Norton surrounded by all the zombies from the cinema, and it was incredibly bloody. And my parents used to buy me and my brother this sci-fi magazine, Starburst. It used to get more and more gory and have complaints about it. But like, I just could not believe this kind of photo of this movie, and then reading the coverage of it. This is like three years before I saw the thing. So it's that weird thing when back in the days, you know, pre-internet and stuff, when you're relying on books and magazines, you know, that you would get obsessed by movies you hadn't seen. You know, you look at the stills, you'd know everything about it. And I remember the first time it was on network TV, uh, 1984, maybe three years after it came out, I was only 10 by then, and my parents knew how obsessed me and my brother were with the movie, so they let us stay up to watch it. However, when it, if you've seen the movie, there's a particularly gory uh, flashback with like Nazi demons, and at a point where somebody's throat gets slit very gorily, my mum was like, okay, that's enough, bed. <laughs> and I was sent, I was, which is also a bad policy, because then I had terrible nightmares. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I didn't see the monster vanquished at the end, there's no resolution of the film for me. So it actually gave me worse nightmares than if I'd watched the whole thing. Which is why you're sitting here. So. Yeah. Although if I had stayed watching about another 10 minutes, I would have had to watch uh, the Jenny Agatha nude shower scene with my mum and dad, which would have been equally embarrassing. Um, but I obviously finally saw the movie and it sort of just quickly became, and still is, I think this is one of those movies that's just like, and I think when you cross genres together, if you do films that are two genres in one, like a comedy horror or something like that, no two movies are the same. You know, things just have their completely unique tone. And this is one of those movies that not only does it have a unique tone in itself, but also within John Landis's filmography. He never really did a film that's exactly like it. The other reason, of course, that this is extraordinary to me is that I think, and this is one of the things that kind of went on to influence me in a big way, is when I think of films which have like a like jukebox soundtrack, that using source music, not music composed for the film, using pop songs. There's like, and obviously 2001 in a weird way or something like that, they're using like classical hits. Um, the other big ones like growing up that would have a big influence on me um, would be American Graffiti, George Lucas's movie, which is kind of wall-to-wall -wall rock and roll hits, all playing on radios and stuff. American Wealth in London, like hugely influential because it's all of a theme. All of the songs in the movie uh, have moon, the moon in the title. Yeah. So you open with, a, there's like three covers of Blue Moon, including right. one in this clip. There's like, um, like Moon Dance by Van Morrison, Bad Moon Rising. Curiously, 
Not where off in London by uh, um, Warren's even. Not in the movie, strangely. Um, there were some ones I think he wanted to use that couldn't use. Like, he couldn't use Moonshadow by Cat Stevens. He couldn't right. use Elvis's version of Blue Moon. But I think when I saw this when I was 10, I'd never seen a movie like it. And it has some score as well, but the actual the choice to kind of stick to a theme of particular songs and nearly always be counter-scoring. Um, so, especially in this scene is the beautiful Blue Moon cover is going against the action. This is the version sung by Sam Cooke. Yes. And this is the scene where I had said that it was scored and it was called Release Later's Metamorphosis. And this, oh. this was scored by Elmer Bernstein, the great Elmer Bernstein. So he scored the sequence, but then they decided to use the, the Sam Cooke version. And the movie opens with Blue Moon, and it also closes with Blue Moon. So An amazing cover of Blue Moon at the versions. end. Yeah, it's incredible. I think they, they, they didn't have iTunes back then, so they could only think of like five <laughs> Moon songs. I think they wanted to use Elvis's one, and they also right. wanted to use Bob Dylan when they couldn't. Um, but like this sequence is just incredible. I mean, the other thing about this sequence, I'm sure some, many of you have seen this Oscar-winning sequence. This actually yeah. got... You know, this movie got the first ever. They created the Academy Award for special effects and makeup for this movie. This is 1981. 1981. So they created a category for the movie because it's such extraordinary work. And also, this transformation sequence is kind of like at the time and still now. You know, it got John Landis the job directing Michael Jackson's Thriller. But it's also like notable for the fact that all previous werewolf transformations or transformations of film are always done in the dark in the shadows, because it's easier to hide in the shadows and hide some of the effects, and this one is in, like, sort of very harsh light. That movie is just incredible to me. I never, I never... Also, the best cutaway to Mickey Mouse ever. <laughs> yeah, is that an homage, you think? I'm not sure. I also just think it's kind of like, it's just a funny thing to cut to. I'm actually surprised they gave them the clearance to use it in, like, an X-rated movie. Oh, come on, that's incredible. It took them six days to, to do that sequence. Um, Rick Baker, like, yeah, amazing makeup artist, L.A. native. Um, yeah, and won the first Oscar for that. And that's, you know, like I said, that's like Michael Jackson saw that movie and was like, uh, called him up to do off. Thriller. Let's yeah. rip that off, yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but also I, I, that, that movie is, it's such a simple idea and it's such a clever idea to sort of use the different like moon themed songs. And sometimes it's working perfectly with uh, the movie, like Van Morrison, like is, uh, which is a romantic song, is like soundtrack in the sex scene. But in that's having that kind of like beautiful Sam Cooke cover against all of that, you know, sort the of foley, screaming the and bone breaking, it's amazing. Uh, moving along to... Uh Scott Pilgrim versus the world? Yes. Um, this movie was a real gift in terms of like, it's based on Brian Lee O'Malley's amazing graphic novel series. And um, you know, one of the interesting things, me and uh, a writer called, uh, LA writer called Michael Bacall, who um, we wrote the adaptation together. One of the things that was great about doing the movie is that at the very start, um, Brian Lee O'Malley, the writer of the comic books, he had made these playlists to go with the, um, the books for himself. And um, were they any good? Yeah, and in fact, some of the songs are in the movie. Um, and, uh, and then on the flip side, I made playlists based on what I felt when I read different books. So we sort of like started the process of the adaptation by exchanging songs. And quite a lot of the songs on both of our lists ended up in the movie. The cool thing with this one uh, was that uh, also in the books and in the film, there are fictional bands. And um, 
you know, sometimes like fictional bands in films can be like bad. Um, there are some like great examples of like great fictional bands, Spinal Tap being the obvious one. Um, I love a movie called Phantom of the Paradise by Brian De Palma, which has se several fictional bands sure. in it, all written by Paul Williams, yeah. who actually makes a cameo in Baby Driver. Um, so with this, we had an idea that because there are several fictional bands in it, that we would get different people to play the different bands. Nigel Godridge, who's like Radiohead and Beck and producer, um, this is the only film that he ever scored so far. He also kind of um, basically brought the different bands together. And I think this clip doesn't have a band bit, but it does. Um, the second clip has some more band stuff. But um, this clip is like uh, the bass-off sequence. And uh, what's funny about this bass-off is we recorded it live. Two guitar players that you probably know, Justin Medell Johnson yes. and Jason Faulkner, who yes. both play with Beck. Um, and they basically performed the bass-off live. I think on the, on the Blu-ray there's a video of it. So then Michael Sarah and Brandon Ralph basically had to kind of sort of learn to do these very intricate like bass solos. <clears throat> and, and actually Michael Sarah is a really good guitarist. So he, he, he was, uh, you know, sort of, Brandon had to kind of like sort of like really like bone up to get there. But it was an amazing sort of experience doing this movie because there was so much music in it. And we had like sort of Nigel around sometimes. Nigel came to record some of the songs with the cast. Or like we had the amazing thing of like, um, you know, Metric did a song and then Brie Larson re-recorded the vocal or like Beck did a whole bunch of songs and then the actors re-recorded the vocal. Uh, it was amazing because then it was really like, I think in the whole movie feels like sort of um, uh, like you get a sense of the music business by having different artists do different bits. So it was an incredible like experience like to sort of have all these artists that I love doing bits and bobs on the film. And even on the score, like sort of uh, Nigel had members of Air, like Nicholas Godin, who you know, like, um, and... Um, I was in Air. Yeah, and uh, um, members of Broken Social Scene and members of Supergrass and Kid Koala, and there's all sorts of people playing on the actual score itself. So it's an amazing experience. And then also it's something that like, uh, um, and this is very much in the books, but it's something I really wanted to do. And if anything, like Scott Pilgrim is sort of my way of like doing something a bit like spaced on the big screen. Sort of taking that kind of like sort of pop arty, um, sort of highly stylized sort of comedy and doing it with like a sort of action music film. Whose idea was it to have a Rickenbacker and the Fender Mustang bass? I think they're both in the comic. I think they're both really? like drawn like that. We were pretty specific to what he'd drawn. Because they're different, but they're two of the coolest bases. Yeah, no, so, Brian Liamelli knows his well stuff. Done. I'm pretty much, I, I'm almost certain that that's, we took it straight from the comic. Um, but I remember we, we, we recorded that base off uh, at Capitol Records, like sort of oh, wow. not far away. And Justin and Jason did it live. So that's kind of like so a So they did it while to the picture after no, you had they done did it, it before. Or you did, did it before. Wow. And then Michael Sarah and Brandon Ralph like basically like sort of um, yeah. you know um, played along with it. But what's funny is that the take is, is a take. Yeah. It's not us like doing one bit and then doing they're the other. They're good. They're good. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're amazing, you know. Yeah. So um, and they're both like sort of um, um, I mean uh, like two of the sort of best session guitarists out there. And producers now. Justin produces now. Justin produces. Well, Justin is a kind of bass player's bass player, and Jason Faulkner plays everything. Yeah. So. And with the other funny thing about that, is anybody from Toronto? Toronto, rather. Um, pizza, pizza. Because that place is a, is a famous venue called Leeds Palace, but we actually... I played there, sure. But we re that's a set. We recreated... 
Because it looks a lot nicer than Lee's Palace, actually. <laughs> it's like a little bit bigger. So the Canadian bands that came to visit, like Metric and Broken Social Scene, were absolutely dumbfounded that we'd basically made a set of Lee's why, Palace. Why would you do that? Well, because <laughs> you couldn't knock down the walls on the other one. It was like, I think the entire place would have come down if we'd done that. It was not, not necessarily a structurally sound play. In fact, actually, whilst just after we shot and it, the one exterior of Lee's Palace for real, it started falling apart that building. So I wouldn't have shot that sequence in the real location. Um, but I, you know, I have fond memories of doing that bit, and there's just little images that you, you know, like that are not just the idea of like Brandon Ralph like pushing all of the empty like glasses along the floor, like with his telekinesis is always really. I, I, I love a lot of the details in that. Did you live in Toronto? I, only when I was doing the film. I was there for nearly a year making the movie and had a fantastic time. I mean, that place is, is great. And it was, it, was at, it was at the time when there was a sort of, such a sort of fertile, yeah. you know, broken social scene and all the various factions that came out of that. So, you know, I got to know all of those bands. And it you was, got to also work with Chris from Sloan, right? Yes. Another friend of mine. Yeah. yeah. Great band. Uh, he was, um, what's his name? Chris um, Murphy. Chris Murphy. Oh, yeah. Sloan. They're rock stars yeah. in Canada. They're huge in Canada. Huge. And he was the, basically the kind of music teacher on the movie. So he basically kind of like, the, 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 the cast all had varying abilities of musicianship. You know, um, Michael was really good. Like, um, Brie Larson was really good. We had a like, sort of real, um, and then other people had to learn their instruments. Like, Alison Pill had to learn to play the drums. Mark Webber had to learn to play the guitar. So, and Chris was there. And what's funny for the Canadian members of the cast, like Michael Sarah and Alison Pill. Oh my God. Yeah, they couldn't believe that Chris Murphy was there basically being teacher. And in a lot of the shots, especially when Mark Webber is performing on guitar, Chris Murphy is standing to the side of the camera going, D, A, like sort of like, basically like acting out. And so, so Mark Webber could basically follow what Chris Murphy was doing. So it's quite, and also Chris Murphy was wearing the same costume as Mark Webber. So it's a very surreal thing to kind of witness. <laughs> this is from a film called Mauvais Sang from 1985. Uh, and this is a director called Leo Carrox. Some of you might know this film. Leo Carrox is a French director who's only really done a handful of films. A film called Boy Meets Girl, another one called Les Amants de Pont Neuf called Lovers on the Bridge in the States. And then more recently, you might have seen his film Holy Motors, uh, which is a fantastic movie. Nearly all of them starred Dennis Levant, and nearly all of them have some amazing sequence featuring like a pop song. Most of his movies feature some incredible musical set piece. What's also I love in that is just the fact that they've painted or pasted the walls for like several blocks. Yeah. Yeah, and he's like, like pasted like shot. gray and red and all the colors. So it starts kind of like strobing behind him. And obviously that's 1985. There's no like trickery in that. It's all in camera. You can even kind of see like the sort of the cameraman like sort of is like sort of struggling to keep up with him at some <laughs> points. And I'm sure that's probably like pre, I mean, I don't know what they, sh I, I, they probably just shot that out of the car window. I'm, like, I'm not sure that there's any like dolly that can go that fast at that time. Or there's before the days of cable cam and all that kind of stuff. So I just sort of think that's like, I mean, his movies are well worth seeing. There's not that many of them. I think there's like six total. Um, and I highly recommend um, Holy Motors, his last film, which is, stars an older Dennis Levant. But I just wanted to share that clip because it's one of my favorite bits of music and film. And it's always good to hear David Bowie. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, now we're going to see another clip from Scott Pilgrim. This, I remember there was a point when I was making the sequence 
where I really felt like I'd bitten off more than I could chew. <laughs> I remember at one point, just like, uh, there's lots of things in this movie where like, um, there's like lights going off within the movie. We sort of had this idea that um, every time there's like a connection, like a hit, like that there should be a light going off. So in a lot of the fight scenes, this isn't one of the fight scenes specifically, but we would have these light bulbs placed around the shot in, to go off in an order. And um, I would set them off by hand. You know, sometimes the choreographer would do it, but most of the time I would do it. And so I'd have this button, I'd stand by the monitor, and I would be going, there were the real light bulbs. I think we used like 4,000 light bulbs during the making of the movie. And we would be like going, psh, 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 psh. And I'd have this button, and it just said Edgar. They gave it to me at the end, I had this button, it was just my light bulb button. And I remember at a point during this sequence, I remember me and the AD and the director of photography, it was, it was like, usually like there's always a sequence where like it's like three quarters of the way through the shoot where everybody's exhausted and it's before the kind of final you know, rally where it's like everybody's tired. And I remember this is exactly where this scene landed. I'm very happy with the finished thing, but I remember like a point in like shooting it, like standing by the monitors with a wind machine going and pressing all these light bulb buttons. I was thinking, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> like, um, <laughs> I think that every day. <laughs> um, and it's funny, Michael Sarah said that for like a long time after the film, he had the sound of like light bulbs, like it would kind of like haunt his dreams. <laughs> Obviously later on, but the amazing thing is they're all like digitally taken out. The actual light bulbs are all gone. But if you actually watch closely, especially in the final sequence with the sword fight and stuff, there's like sort of, that every time that they connect, that like a light goes off. And you can't really do that stuff digitally because, you know, it throws a light in a certain direction. So there's like shitloads of lighting cues in this sequence. And, um, uh, and the other thing to say about this one, which is interesting, is uh, this is like a battle between two bands. And the Japanese band is played by Cornelius, um, who if you don't know that artist, who is one of my favorite artists, incredible guy. Um, I just saw him live this summer, in fact. And Incredible live show, too. And, and what's funny, like, when, when uh, Cornelius was being promoted over here by Matador, the easy thing they used to say is, like, oh, Cornelius, Cornelius is like the Japanese Beck. Um, so playing the part of Sex Bomb in this sequence is Beck. Right. So my thought with this sequence, it was, like, Beck versus Japanese Beck. <laughs> Which is a joke probably for an audience of one, me. <laughs> no, I get it. I, I totally get it. But what's funny is that, that I think Beck and Cornelius are, are friends, and um, in fact, Cornelius has done some remixes of Beck's songs. Um, but like, uh, what's interesting is both of them did these songs completely separately, and they're both obviously done before the movie. Um, and in fact, Cornelius and Beck, they both like recorded their songs. We had no footage, I just gave them storyboards. In Cornelius's case, I'd cut together the storyboards and he did a sort of approximation. Beck, on the other hand, in his like, in Hancock Park in his garage, like, um, garage. Um, uh, that's how we say in the UK. It's got a recording studio. <laughs> he, one weekend, he wanted to do the songs, and Nigel had worked with him, but he wanted to work off, I think he was working off an A-track or something that he just had at home, and he said, give me the scenes, give me lots of artwork, give me sort of some rough guidelines of what the song needs to be, and let me have a go. So basically, like, we printed out large pieces of the artwork from the books. We gave him all the storyboards for the sequences on boards. I gave him a list of how many songs I needed. And over a weekend, 
At the end of the weekend, Nigel called me and said, oh, Beck's got something for us. And it was like a CDR with like 22 songs on it. <laughs> and basically the songs were like done in a rough form. Maybe it's on a four track, actually. They're done in a rough form. He gave us versions without the vocals because the actors ended up singing on top, you know, replacing his vocals. On the album, you can get the Beck versions too. But we never got him to re-record anything because they sounded so raw and garagey um, that it just seemed right. And even in, in the music that's in the opening credits was very difficult for the actors to mime along with because there were lots of fluffs on it. You know, they were sort of just kind of jamming and improvising. But it sounded so real. It just sounded like we should use that and not get him to do any overdubs. And so what he did on his four track that weekend is what's in the movie, including this song. Did you send him any Oscar Fissinger? Any what, sorry? Oscar Fissinger? No, what's that? The... I'm thinking of the opening of the movie that feels visually... Oh. Like, that Oscar Fissinger is one of my heroes. Oh, like the scratch kind of art? Yeah. Yeah, you know what? That, that sequence, actually, it's funny. That, that wasn't the original intention, the opening credits of the movie. Um, we originally it was it had them playing that song and then it said the title and then it went into the movie and they finished the song. It was a suggestion by Name Drop Alert, Quentin Tarantino. He said, "Who?" He said, "You should." He watched the movie and he said, "You should have a title sequence at the start of this movie." He goes, "Just to let everybody settle and see the names of the people who are going to be in the movie and just let everybody get their heads around it for like two minutes." And I thought, that's an interesting idea. So we didn't have anything, but we did have this Beck demo. The thing that the sex people on playing in the empty credits, there was like three minutes of it. And it was fun. And it, like, so the only thing that we added with Nigel is that we got the actors to come in and like yell on top of the demo. Like they were like jamming and trying to shout at each other whilst they were playing. But basically, that demo is the opening titles of the movie. So that, um, there's another artist, Norman something. What's the other guy who does the scratch art? Um, anybody? McLaren. Was Norman McLaren? Yes. That's the guy. <laughs> Thank you. So the reference was Norman McLaren. <laughs> yeah, so that was, so Beck didn't see any of that until it was finished. Mm. So we never, that, that, that idea for that sequence didn't exist until very late in the day. And then these amazing music video guys called Chinola, who've done incredible videos, right. they, I asked them to do the opening credits, and so we had that demo. Well, it seems like there's a lot of Easter eggs in that movie. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a Queen track in that scene. Can anybody name it? Flash Gordon. There's the, the, the sound of the ring is from Flash Gordon, and we had to clear <laughs> You licensed that? You cleared that? <laughs> we licensed it. I can it's make that on my phone called, right now. You know? I don't know. I think so. We just did it, and then it was just always funny to me that in the end credits it says, Queen, the hypnotic seduction of Dale is the name of the track. <laughs> the other thing that's in there, Little Easter is when the Japanese turn their dials up, that is the Japanese symbol for 11. Uh, <laughs> very, it's very silly. The other thing I really remember about that is that like, when we shot the whole scene, when we shot all the stuff with the actors and the, the Sato twins who played the Katty Nagy twins, then we had to do a day of like, shooting plates for all the effect stuff. So we had to go back and shoot the crowds. And, like, and one of my vivid memories of the movie, and especially when you stand at it like a, a remove, is watching the second AD explain the movie to the extras of what was happening in the scene. <laughs> And he's going, so then you look up and there's two dragons and then over here is like this electric yeti and then, and then they're fighting. So you're like, wow. And then they've killed the dragons and you cheer and then the yeti disappears and you cheer again. 
and like you can I imagine the looks on the extras' faces trying to process all of that. <laughs> Just nod. Yep. yep. <laughs> I love that punk rock like blows away EDM in that scene too. <clears throat> Well, like I said, that was, that was Beck's demo. So that was the demo he did in, in like, Hank Which is Park. what punk rock is. Yeah, you on don't, a four like, track. demos for punk no rock. No overdubs. Just make it. Yeah, it was amazing. Oh, so the next one we already started talking about. Goodfellas. Goodfellas. Um, 1990. So I think, you know, Martin Scorsese is one of those directors who can use music just brilliantly. And I think this, you know, he'd already been doing it in his career with, like, Mean Streets and, you know, The Color of Money and... The um, Last Waltz. Well, sorry? The Last, oh, the last Waltz. Waltz, yeah. I mean, he um, lived with Robbie Robertson. He... But, and I think this is the movie where I think they, you know, sort of, it's such an expansive soundtrack because the movie moves from 50s to 60s to 70s and, um, you know, covers, like, hits from all of those sequences. But this is one of those sequences, uh, I, we should just play it, I won't say which one it is because you'll know which one it is. Um, but it's just one of those sequences where, like, it's so thrillingly edited and put together. And this isn't the whole sequence, but just some of it. And uh, just also just genius use of um, music. And in a lot of cases, like him using music that either hadn't been used in films before or, you know, making it the defining use of that song. You know, there are some kind of songs that, like, I think Scorsese has just claimed as his own and nobody else can use them. Give Me Shelter. Give Me Shelter. Uh, Layla. He also would play music on set. He would play right. music on set. And I know that in this movie, which does take place over these, you know, quite a, quite a few years, different decades, that he, was, he wanted to be sure that whatever he played could have existed in that time. So yeah. he, he was... Yeah, this piece of music is from uh, 1971, 72, uh, the great Harry Nilsson yeah. doing Jump Into the Fire. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's, let's play this. Let's check it out. So that was Harry Nelson, and then we go into a uh, memo ja- from Turner, from yeah, Rolling Stones. Yeah, Mick Jagger Stone, from Performance. From, with Ry Cooter on guitar. Uh, and, and then later on in the sequence, it the has who- like, I think it has six songs in total in that sequence. Monkey Man by The Stones, Magic Bus by The Who, Managed Boy by Muddy Waters, and there's another one as well that I've forgotten. But, um, Probably another Rolling Stones song. <laughs> uh, what's the other one? Um, oh, it's a George Harrison, What Is Life? Oh, yeah. yeah. And then, and then they play like Harry Nelson again at the end. I mean, I remember watching that film. I think it was like the first film, I, I saw it when I was 16. And I think it was an 18 in the UK, so I was sneaking in. But I went back to see it the next night because I was just so bowled over by the technique. Uh, you know, and I think his use of music and the editing. I mean, what's great in that sequence, obviously he's like coked out and it's all paranoid, but it's, it was taking place in the course of a day. So it makes a sort of a choice that you don't really... I mean, it's the first time I think I'd ever seen that in a movie, the idea of like, well, if it's taking place in the course of a day, there's six songs to show you the passing of time, to show the montage, rather than have one song that carries all the way through. There is a funny link with Shaun of the Dead. Goodfellas and Shaun of the Dead have the same camera operator. Uh, actually, no, the, sorry, uh, uh, the camera operator, uh, yeah, camera operator on Goodfellas was the DP and main camera operator on Shaun of the Dead. And one of the funny things is that, you know, this guy's name is David Dunlap, and um, one of the funny things is, uh, all the way through the shoot, he was the, he was the operator on um, Goodfellas. So he'd shot all of that sequence you just saw. He's not a steady cam operator, though. So all the way through the shoot, people would say, oh, my God, you shot Goodfellas. What a, tell us about doing the shot in the kitchen when they go through the kitchen. <laughs> uh, David would say, uh, I, didn't, I didn't do that. That was, that was Larry Edmonds, but I, I did everything else. And they go, oh, but that kitchen shot, man. <laughs> 
Then, just to horn David Dunlap again, with Shaun of the Dead, people say, ah, oh, you did Shaun of the Dead. What about that Steadicam show when he goes to the store and back? And he goes, uh, I didn't shoot that one. That was Chris Edwards, but I did everything else. So I feel like David Dunlap is constantly haunted by these amazing, I mean, still incredible to have done the rest of Goodfellas, obviously, but he did both movies. But that was something, I mean, and, and I think actually, this is leads us into, you know, something like that, like sort of both like, um, a lot of directors whose choice use of music that I love, like Scorsese, Tarantino, Steven Soderbergh, you know, like sort of that definitely, Walter Hill as well, like that definitely kind of plays into sort of Baby Driver, which is sort of like the kind of culmination of loving movies like Goodfellas and also the use of music in them as well. Um, so in, in a way, like, you know, sort of as I was, something like Goodfellas that has so much music in it where it's like, it's usually playing a score. Sometimes it's happening within the scene or you get the sense that it's, playing like in, in, a, in a club or a wedding or in a bar. And I think the sort of the idea that I had for Baby Driver is that to sort of do a soundtrack like that, but to have it entirely diegetic and also to have the main character playing the music. So most of the music in the film, the lead character has actually chosen it. And then a lot of times in the movie, you're listening to what he's listening to. So you're seeing the movie through his eyes and hearing the movie through his ears. And he has a pretty good taste. Yes. <laughs> I mean, a lot of these are obviously things that I like. I mean, if you're going to make a movie like, and you're going to listen to these songs hundreds of times, you better love the song, you yeah. know, so... Um, a good song is always a good song, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, is that in the movie, there are no songs that I tire of because I love all the songs. And, you know... And I think there's about 44... There's a lot of songs. I think it's like th uh, maybe like 35 like, commercial tracks... Uh, which is a lot, and uh, you know, and we had to also kind of clear them before we started shooting. Um, you know, much like so, it was like doing the Queen scene 35 times over. So in a scene like this, it is exactly like that, where sometimes Ansel's listening to it in his ears. A lot of times in this sequence, because there's no dialogue, it was one of the few sequences where we could just play it out loud. So in a lot of these scenes in the street, we're just playing this song, you know, full full volume, because the other actors are also like doing stuff in time with the music um, but this is the thing like this literally this song that opens this movie by the John Spencer Blues Explosion is the song that I heard when I was 21 and what's the start of the germ of the idea for the movie was because when I listened to this song I would start imagining this car chase and you know I was 21 years old so it wasn't like I necessarily like sort of was thinking this this would be a great scene in something. I started to think that, but it was more that I, when I listened to the song, I couldn't think of anything else. So I would always start visualizing this car chase. So it was like having like action movie synesthesia, as I sort of, like, sort of had this vision of this thing. And you know, like the Mineral video that we saw earlier was like the sort of the start of a dry run for it. But this kind of has like, you know, what happens next. Um, so it was like a real thrill to have, and, and in the time, I think after Shaun of the Dead, I met John Spencer from the Blues Explosion and we became friends and I sort of told him, I didn't want to jinx it for myself in terms of if I, if I said, oh, I've got this idea for a movie and I really want to use bell bottoms. And I'm sure John thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, you know, cut to like this summer, um, John Spencer is actually in the movie as well. Ah. Like, he is in the final scene of the movie and sort of has one of the final lines of the movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to spoil the end scene. But, like, uh, the, the idea I thought was it'd be funny if John Spencer was the first and last voice you hear in Baby Driver. Oh, yeah. um, so, anyway, well, let's watch this scene. Uh, Bell Bottoms, John Spencer Blues Explosion, 1994. <laughs> 
Did you add some... I don't remember the strings being in that track. There are strings in bell bottoms, but we do actually like add to the start of it. That was one of the things that was really... That's what I mean in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So there are strings in that song, and um, one of the things that was great, Steve Price, who is the composer on this film, he is somebody that, uh, when I first started thinking about the script, like 10 years ago, he was a music editor. And uh, I met him, I said, is there a good music editor? I asked uh, our music supervisor, and he said, oh, there's this guy called Steve Price, you should meet him. So I got him to break down the tracks for me. And uh, I had 10 of the tracks worked out, like Bell Bottoms, Hocus Pocus, Tequila, like The Damned, like Brighton Rock, a lot of the big set pieces in the movie. And he did these like sort of basically like charts, much more detailed versions of like intro verse one, verse two, you know, middle eight, but just a lot more detailed. And it was really helpful. I incorporated it a lot into the script. The other thing with Steve is that then the next time I wrote with him, he was like the music editor and arranger on Scott Pilgrim. The next thing he did was he was uh, one of the composers on a film I produced called Attack the Block. And the next thing he did is he composed Gravity and won the Oscar. <laughs> Only with his second score, which is astonishing. Uh, I did the World's End with him. And then, but when it came to this, there's only like really like half an hour of score in Baby Driver. Um, but I called Steve, even though he's a big time Oscar winner now, and said, you have first refusal because you were there right at the start. And he goes, oh, of course I want to do it. And the great thing about Steve, and this isn't the case with like, probably in direct contrast to say Alex North, you know, uh, being bumped off, like his score being bumped off by all the temp music. The great thing about Steve is that he knows what the movie is. He knows about the songs. And a lot of his score in the movie is in like leading into the same key Connective as the song. tissue. Yeah, yes. I notice there's a lot of handoffs between, yeah. And that's great. And, and not all composers would do that because some of them have too much ego to kind of like really think about what well, the other stuff is. The great thing about Steve is that there are several bits in Baby Driver where the score starts to come in during a song or in the middle of a song. Um, you know, at the opening of Baby Driver itself is it sort of starts with like the sort of um, tinnitus starts on the Sony bing at the start and then builds and builds and builds and turns into strings and then Bellbottom starts and his strings keep going until the strings in Bellbottom starts. So that's like a great example of like the song and the score and the sound design all going together. And, um, you know, so there's like places in the movie where like a song that you know already suddenly sort of has like this kind of, in Hocus Pocus we do it as well where there's a part in the middle of the song where sort of an orchestra is sort of playing at the same time in the same key, you know, sort of bolstering parts of the song. And also this, this film in general is incredibly rhythmic. It's, there's so many sequences that are glued to the music. So you clearly were yeah. doing your homework before and afterwards. Yeah, so I mean... Very rhythmic. All of the songs were written into the script. Pretty much every day on the set was like shooting the Queen scene and shooting the dead. We always had every possible way of doing playback. So in some cases, only Ansel can hear it and maybe the camera operator and me. Um, in some cases, everybody can hear it. So, you know, obviously at the start of that sequence when John Hamm and John Bernthal and Asa Gonzalez are getting out of the car, they can all hear the track. And on top of the track as well, like the choreographer is counting on top. Right. Like, that, sure. that little shot at the end is much more deceptive, it's much more complicated than it might seem when they get out, Ansel pulls up, they get out of one car, they all open their doors at the same time, they all close their doors at the same time, they all switch places, Aza switches costumes, they all get into the final car, 
close the doors on time, drive off, and then she drives off all in one shot. And if you watch the scene again, it's pretty much like a, it's almost a 360. And like the crew are all hiding behind pillars and other cars. Because <laughs> there's nowhere to hide. Because we basically, like, as the camera operator pans around, and me and the choreographer, the choreographer Ryan would be running around the camera. And because it's like the car's noisy and stuff, that's a case where he's going, five, six, seven, eight, you know, like shouting out on top. So that, that's a case of like they're doing it to the music. But I think after a couple of rehearsals, they then just do it to the counts. Because, like, right. with the car stuff, like, the car, especially when you're on the freeway, forget trying to listen to John Spencer. So, so, so some of those times is, like, you have to kind of, like, do it with counts or create those moments later. But everything up until that, you know, the music is playing, like, full blast. It must be something like 10 days shoot over a long period of time. We'd keep coming back to it. And poor John Bernthal, who's only in the first kind of couple of scenes of the movie, was like the one actor who kept having to come back to Atlanta, you know, to do, come back and do like a day of frowning in a car and then go back to, <laughs> and go back to Ojai. He was totally fine with it, though. I remember he said a funny thing to me that was really, really stuck with me. Because I think John, all of the other actors were there for the whole time, but John Bernthal was the one actor I felt like I, I needed to apologize to him because I think he was supposed to come back and forth, but then we needed to do extra stuff on the scene, and so he came back an extra, like, three times. So in total, on the movie, he flew to Atlanta maybe eight or nine times or something. And I said to him at the end, on the last day, I said, hey, John, I just want to say thanks for your patience. You know, these scenes are really sort of, like, um, meticulous and difficult to do. And John Bernthal said, he goes, listen, man, if this shit was easy, every asshole would do it. <laughs> and I thought those are words to live by. By the great philosopher John Bernthal. <laughs> I mean, he's he's not wrong. It was something I really it really stuck with me. He just said it, and it really stuck with me. If this shit was easy, every asshole would do it. Michelle Gondry's uh, Chemical Brothers uh, video for uh, the song Star Guitar, which is a fantastic. I, this came out in 2002, and yeah. it was mostly all shot on a TGV train. And I've taken those trains. Michel's from France, so he's taken them more than me. But I've taken those trains many, many times just listening to music. And it's, it's one of the best music videos you'll ever see. It's just your own, just sitting on the train. Everything, because they go over 200 miles an hour. Yeah. You're just sitting there. It's like, everything becomes yeah. locked to the rhythm here. And it uh, had a big effect on me as a, as a musician. Um, just those rides, but Michelle nailed it with this video. Yeah. It's really kind of an incredible work. I think it's such a deceptively simple video. I remember the first time I saw it, I was like sitting, I think it was a production company that I was working with for music videos, and uh, I was watching it through the TV. I was watching it on a TV through a piece of glass, so I was like watching it through a window and without the sound, and I was looking at this video thinking, what the fuck is that? Because it was just like, sort of, it's just like a, tr like a train shot. Yeah. And then obviously you hear it and say, oh, this is, this is genius. And th there's elements of that that even factored into the clip we just saw. Sure. Because like... Um, it's all very rhythmic. Yeah, and there are a couple of places where like, you know, almost everything is in camera. And then there are some like clever cheats, like right at the end of Bell Bottoms, when they pull into that car park, on those like little like bass riffs, you see these concrete pillars go through shot. Right. Two of them are real and two of them are not real. And it's like sort of like you've got one that lands on the music and then we say, this one's on the music, put one in there and put one in there. And it's literally like you're putting it on the beat. Right. If you see, uh, if you've got the, the Michelle Gondry, they did those amazing, I think it's Palm Pictures did those like yeah, yeah, yeah. best of Michelle Gondry music yeah. videos. They have the making of, and one of the things he did is he took the track 
and basically like notated right. where the the beats were, and then worked it out initially with like oranges and dominoes, like putting them on the kind of the um, ground. And Michelle plays drums. I yeah, mean, he is a drummer, so he's got that. So this sense. is made up of video through a train window in France, but it's obviously then like sort of computer generated like loops, but it's still just incredible. And it's one of those things where, you know, um, it's, you know, a lot of his videos I love. Another one that does a similar thing that I really love is um, his Daft Punk video for Around the World, right. which also does a similar which thing. Which is a similar thing. It's amazing. Anyway, this is a hypnotic and incredible video. And this also features a sample by David Bowie from yeah. Starman. A truly hypnotic video. Um, <laughs> This is actually the, the, the sequence that immediately follows the last one you saw in Baby Driver. This is the opening credit sequence. And a couple of interesting things about this. If you, have only, if you haven't seen it before, if you've seen it for the second time, most of you probably know this, but keep a close eye on what's written all over the walls and all over the place during the, during the opening sequence. The other thing that's interesting about this, it's all in one shot. Um, and it's a Steadicam shot, so it's all in one shot. And we did it on the first day of the shoot. Um, and it's to like a two-minute, 45-second shot. And um, in the course of a day, I think we sort of did two sort of half-day rehearsals on set. We rehearsed a lot with like Ansel and then with the kind of like the extras and everything and other people, we sort of did two sort of half-day rehearsals. On the Blu-ray, actually, there's a great, funny, like, dress rehearsal on video, which is worth watching. Um, on the day, like a 10-hour shooting day, we shot 28 takes of this. And uh, this is take 21, uh, shot 35 mil. I, I, like our poor, like our amazing operator, a guy called Roberto Dangelis, uh, D'Angelis rather. He, um, it was his first day on the shoot, and so during the course of this day, I think we worked out that he walked like 50 city blocks by the end of the day. <laughs> so poor Roberto got a real workout. The other thing that's crazy about this is that I had, um, I had got the song. And this is like years before. There was a, a British DJ. Yeah, his name is Mark Nicholson, Ozzy Misu. And he's like one of those guys who came around in sort of like 2000, one of those like mashup guys. And he's really talented and he's great at like combining um, sort of different samples into his like music. So way back when I first started writing this, I made this mix of Harlem Shuffle where I gave him notes and we basically put in sound effects all the way through the song, including like baby talking to a barista. And what's funny is that the, we basically use that as the guideline for the choreography all the way through, even to the point where at one point there's the sound of somebody using an ATM. And we had it on a track in a certain place, and I just got used to it. You know, like, uh, or another bit where he bumps into somebody and they say, hey, you know, look out. Um, but it's funny with the ATM is like we had this sound there, so when we were working out the song, I could sort of, you know, we were timing it out and following Ansel, and by the track, I could say to the production designer, that's where the ATM goes. Like, that's where the sound is, that's the where that goes. So you could sort of work out where things were. One of the other crazy things about working out this sequence is that we had to find a location where we could get to a coffee shop for the chorus. Right. You know, so literally... You can do that in Silver Lake really yeah. easily. Um, but what the, the weird thing you'd have to do is that we started by like finding like, what door do we like? Oh, this is a cool door. Let's use this door. Okay, let's play the song and let's see where we can get to by the time that chorus comes in. So it's kind of a, a crazy thing to witness is like on my iPhone playing Harlem Shuffle, 
and seeing how far I could get. Walking and beat. Yeah. Yeah. And then it also, like, on top of that, then Bill Pope, my cinematographer, say, would say, like, remember Ansel has longer legs. <laughs> like, so... The door that opens this shot, the building that opens this shot, every possible direction away from that and round the corner, we looked at everything to see where we could get to at this point and then whether he could get back in time for the end of the track. Because it isn't one of those tracks where you can really extend it. So it's like one of those things where you're, you're completely like a slave to the song at some point. Is like, this is where it starts. He needs to get to here. And then when he goes back, he needs to go back quicker because you've got less song on the, on the tail end. So, so you didn't edit the song at all? No, the song is the song. And, you know, it's one of those songs where you can't really... You could do an edit with a dance track or something, or like, yeah. but you can't really do an edit with this without people noticing. So it, the song is the song, and that's it. Yeah. But the other thing that was in it as well is that we... With the earwigs, and you'll hear, like, there's several people in the shot who were talking, and those people could hear the track as well. So they're sort of, like, um, speaking in time with the track. And so as well, when you had the sound mix, not only did we have sounds of the street and all these wild tracks, but we had all these people talking for the entire thing. So you can sort of hear, especially when you hear it in like sort of the best kind of stereo, you can hear these bits of conversations coming in and out. But those people were like speaking for the entire track. And then they would sort of be speaking on beats. So they're sort of getting little... I don't know if you've ever done that thing where you know, you make music out of people's words. You know, some of these guys do that amazingly, like Kid Koala and Ozzy Misu, like, sort of can take people's talking and make music out of it. So we're sort of doing that the other way around. So these are all things that came into the creation of this shot. And what's, do you know what the tempo is of the Harlem Shuffle? Uh, That's a very good question. I'm going to check during the... Okay, well, let's watch it, and then we'll come back to it. (laughs) Yeah, it's about 120 beats per minute, which I think most people tend to talk at that cadence. Yeah. I've done a lot of experimenting in my scores and my work with that, and 120, we all kind of talk like that. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing to get them, that sort of those people, the key sort of people who like sort of come into the earshot, you know, we just got them to kind of like keep doing it, and then... You know, so some of them were like, like sort of that guy goes, be on time. Like he's just kind of like sort of talking and improvising, but just kind of like hitting the beats. Yeah, it's again, it's it's a very rhythmic movie, very rhythmic movie, and I can very much appreciate that. Oh, thank you, thank you all for coming tonight, thank and you. thanks to Edgar Wright. I hope you've all picked up a few jewels of wisdom and got some inspiration or whatever that you can take with you as you leave. Um, Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. I came all the way from the top of Hillhurst. I think I came five (laughs) blocks. Yeah. Homeboys. All right. Thank you very much. This has been really fun. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we have done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy's Festival in Los Angeles. But we do events around the world throughout the year. In fact, we may just be doing an event near you pretty soon. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it. 
and consider rating us while you're at it. It really does help uh, other people discover the podcast. Thanks for listening.